Welcome to Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 161 and it's 19th of June 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Ewoks. Ewoks. <laughs> Sorry. I, I feel like I'm going slightly mad because I've become very deeply immersed in Ewok lore and specifically the making of Caravan of Courage and it's a deep rabbit hole it's much deeper than I expected and yeah it's kind of fascinating basically so I'm very excited for our Ewoki discussion which (laughs) has against all odds become a two-parter because we're going to do a separate episode on Battle for Endor so I hope you're excited because I am I'm genuinely excited so yeah, how do you feel about our Ewok filled future, Kirsty? I'm surprised because when we started discussing this episode that I guess is now a series, <laughs> I did not think there was going to be enough to say. Yes. You know, like I'd watched the movies before, definitely enjoyed elements of them. They're very endearing. Um, but I, I didn't know how much we'd have to say. So sure. the surrounding lore and making ofs and why certain things came about it's it's surprising me in the best of ways yeah no i'm very much looking forward to it and i do plan on watching the cartoon after this too i don't know if you do yeah i think i will actually i'm becoming more and more fascinated by you society (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i also really really want to learn more about princess nessa i'm not sure if that's how you say her name but it's kind of written that way and yeah, I need like a badass girl Ewok and she seems to fit the bill. Is that how you say it, actually? I thought it was Nisa, I'm not sure. Ah, yeah, that probably makes sense. There's a character in Doctor Who called Nissa, and I'm probably like conflating the two basically in my mind. So apologies, I will educate myself and do better next time. But yeah, there has been some like bits and bobs going on in Star Wars news, but nothing super substantial. You mentioned stuff going on with the TV shows, right, Kirsty? Yeah, they've said they've wrapped up Book of Boba Fett season one, mm-hmm. and um, there was a a picture of Obi Wan Kenobi, Ewan McGregor on set, just Ooh. completely covered head to toe, like you could barely see him, but you could tell he was wearing Jedi robes. Nice, and a mask, of course. Very, very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> very COVID safe. I'd, I'd like it if they found ways to incorporate masks just onto Tatooine. I guess really that could be quite useful on Tatooine because there's sand everywhere and you'd want to exactly. keep it out of your mouth. So uh-huh. yeah, they could do that, make it even more COVID safe. It's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, let's move on. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, more ground than we thought. Um, so yeah, just very briefly, um, there have been two new episodes of Bad Batch since we last recorded. And so those were Battle Scars and Reunion. In Battle Scars, my main takeaway from that was like record was Wrecker's inhibitor chip basically mm. being activated so that he becomes extremely aggressive and he turns on his friends and actually tries to hurt Omega. And yeah. I, I honestly was really impressed by that episode. I was surprised by how dark and intense it was. Because often it's more like a light and fun show, you know, but it really went to a dark place with the characters and really tested them, which I appreciated. What did you think, Kirsty? I feel like they'd built up that tension pretty well because he'd had his headaches for a few episodes, right? So it was just this like, oh, that's definitely leading somewhere, and it had to, it had to go to Romiga, right? You know that they would turn on her, um, and she was so trusting, and 
so good. Like even with crosshair, she's she wants to see the best in everyone. Yeah. And yeah, I really liked how they framed the story in the episode because obviously they start out with like Wrecker and Omega's like cute little friendship. Because Wrecker, out of all of the clones and the team, he's like so childish and he's really like a big kid himself, isn't he? So yeah, yeah I think that made it more poignant and affecting when he becomes this like brutal killing machine, basically. It's like, no, I want the old Wrecker back, please. Were you pleasantly surprised that it was Rex and not Ahsoka as you feared? Yes, I was. <laughs> I was relieved. Um, because, yeah, like, Rex, I don't know, it just felt more natural somehow than I think Ahsoka would have. And I know there are reasons why Ahsoka would figure into the story. You know, it wouldn't be completely like, what's she doing here? But, yeah, Rex just felt a bit more organic to me, which I appreciate. It did, and, you know, he's obviously got that experience with the chip himself, Um so you could feel like him trying to make them understand how serious this was and you could tell they couldn't quite grasp it they'd yeah. like set themselves apart from the rest of the clones and just thought there was something innately different about them but they still had the chip so it was like a ticking time bomb yeah um, yeah i felt like they handled the tension there very well yeah i was kind of on edge watching that whole episode <laughs> yeah no it's definitely one of the more exciting ones so i really enjoyed that um and then obviously the most recent one is reunion um, and that really ups the ante in terms of them trying to get Omega back. Um, so, I, what they call the Kaminians. <laughs> Why can't I talk? Um, the people from Kamino basically really <laughs> want Omega back. And they're sending out more and more bounty hunters to go and fetch her. And everything all culminates, essentially, when Crosshair finds the team, basically. And then bounty hunters also turn up and it's kind of just chaotic in like all these different factions, like trying to hurt each other slash capture Omega. And yeah, I enjoyed like the chaos of it. So it definitely makes the stakes clear. And spoiler alert, but it really shifts the game by actually having Omega be kidnapped at the end mm. by Cad Bane. So who knows what's gonna happen to her next, but I'm at the stage where I'm looking forward to getting answers, basically, about why she's so important. I wasn't sure who was going to be successful. Mm. I thought they were going to manage to get away. Yeah, which I think I... And I think that really made me appreciate it more, because it's like, finally, momentum. There has been stuff happening, you know? It's not like it's just constantly like filling the time. Um, but I feel like this is a really dramatic development to the plot that changes the status quo. In a way, the episodes up to this point haven't. So, yeah, I'm excited to see like where it goes from here. Yeah, they've had to build the connection between Omega and the, the Bad Batch, right? So that when she is gone, you feel the impact of that. Yes. It is quite shocking now that they've been separated and you're worried about her, obviously. Uh, it was really great to see Crosshair back as well. I'd missed him for a few episodes. Yes, no, definitely. I really appreciated that. And I especially liked that they show Hunter trying to like reach him. You know, yeah. so he clearly doesn't think of Crosshair as a complete lost cause. Basically, he's still trying to, like, appeal to his humanity. And, yeah, I appreciated that because, obviously, I think for us, Star Wars is about redemption. So I never like seeing characters be left on the scrap heap or just assumed to be the worst version of themselves. So, yeah, I think we're leading up to some sort of redemptive moment with Crosshair eventually. But, yeah, we'll see. I might be proven wrong. I hope so. Maybe they'll kill him as he tries to save Amiga. 
Ooh. Yeah, that would be good. You know, that's the thing that they do in Star Wars. Oh yeah, I, I just said that would be good. What sort of monster does that make me? That would be horrible. No, it, it, it makes you uh, understanding the way Star Wars works. You're going to redeem yourself, okay, but you better die. <laughs> it makes me a great candidate for a job at Lucasfilm. So <laughs> I should fill out my job application. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, I could actually see them doing that. Like he saves Omega but dies in doing it because that would be very like rock solid redemption from the Star Wars lore perspective oh my goodness okay um, do you have anything else to say about Bad Batch before we move on to the Ewok movie not really to be honest like I, I'm really enjoying the show week to week but I don't have too much to say about it sure you know like it's 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 nice I'm having fun with it but I'm not I don't really feel the need to go deeper on it yeah so. no I think that's fair and I think it will be easier to see what it's all about at the end of the season basically like when you have that like full sense of what is this what's the story they're telling because a lot yeah. of it's quite mysterious at the moment i guess at this point i'm now wondering if fennec will be a recurring character because she obviously failed to bring amiga in and now amiga is captive so would they still need her services as a bounty hunter yeah that's true probably not <laughs> so does she like turn good or but uh, she can't really because she has to continue being a bounty hunter after this yeah so yeah not sure yeah no i do hope we see her again she's such a good character and yeah i just want more meat on the bones after seeing her in mando and I know we're going to see her again in Boba, but I imagine in telling backstory, it's going to be more about Boba's backstory in that show, not as much about Phoenix. So yeah, Bad Batch would be a good place to fill in more of the gaps for her. But mm. yeah, we will see. Um, okay, cool. But let's move into the Ewok movie discussion. So Caravan of Courage is a TV movie originally, but it gets complicated. So <laughs> it was first broadcast as the Ewok Adventure in America on ABC, I believe, on 25th of November 1984. So that's the year after Return of the Jedi. However, it was released as a theatrical film in Europe and Australia as mm -hmm. Caravan of Courage, an Ewok Adventure. See, I th and I think that's actually why it's easier to find on VHS, for example, in the UK, because it was marketed as a movie and it had a movie-appropriate release, whereas TV movies weren't like, as standard released on video in America. So, yeah, there, I think over there it was much harder to find for a long time. It's obviously just been added to Disney+, Plus, so anyone who wants to watch it can watch it, but for a long time that was not the case and it was kind of obscure. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool that I get to watch them now. And they look good. They do. Yeah, yeah. They're high quality prints, which is really nice. Um, because, yeah, like I think what I watched like on video was not great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> videos are not optimal visual presentation. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, it's definitely a big upgrade to finally have them on streaming. Um, so, yeah, basically with this film... It all goes back to George's daughter Amanda um, because she really liked the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi. But what I didn't quite understand was just how young Amanda was. So Amanda Lucas was only two when Return of the Jedi came out. So of course she loved the Ewoks <laughs> <laughs> because they're bloody teddy bears. I love the Ewoks. Yeah, no, and I also love the Ewoks, but 
you know, if you ask me what's my favourite aspect of Return of the Jedi, <laughs> as much as I love the Ewoks, I'm not going to say the Ewoks. Whereas a two-year-old, I think that's much more understandable in terms of the thought process, you know? Yeah, the teddy bears. Exactly, yeah. So, and and really, yeah, I think that's part of why I find the whole concept of the film very endearing, because really it's just George Lucas being a good dad on like yeah, a huge scale. it's extremely scale. wholesome. Yeah, exactly. He's like, I want to make my little girl happy. What do you want, sweetie? I like Ewoks. <laughs> Ewok movies it is. <laughs> And yeah, I love that. I think it's cute. Um, yep, so the film was pitched to major TV networks, um, but it was turned down by all of them, except for ABC. Um, and ABC said that the film had to occupy a two-hour slot with ads, because the actual film's about 90 minutes. Um, but the, there was there was a lot of advertisements, basically. There's actually a YouTube video that contains all of the original advertisements that were shown with Caravan of Courage. And oh really? Kind of, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. I'd recommend checking it out if you're sad and interested in a sort of thing like me. Is there anything that ties in? Does it feel particularly Star Warsy <laughs> or not? Um, it's stuff like the He-Man toys and stuff, you oh, know. Okay. So it's yeah, perfect for like nostalgic eighties kids, basically, because yeah. it's a total childhood simulator. Um but yeah, why do you think most of the major T V networks would have turned this down, Kirsty? Why wouldn't <laughs> they have been interested in Ewok movies? Um, because even though we know that this is a Star Wars movie, when I'm watching it, I don't really feel like it's in the Star Wars universe, despite the Ewoks. Yes. They're pretty much the only connection. So, I don't know, if people didn't think that the Ewoks were the best part of Return of the Jedi, maybe they maybe they were just like, hmm, doesn't quite feel like Star Wars. Because I guess that does surprise me on a level, because Star Wars was this huge sensation at that point. Like, you know, you'd had these three very well-received movies. They'd made a ton of money. They'd broken endless records. Redefined the blockbuster. Yeah. They didn't want the Ewok movies. I, I think it's interesting. It kind of points to how different the landscape was back then. Because now, like, in t the entertainment industry, and particularly the movies... It's built around these massive franchises, you know, like Marvel, Star Wars, <laughs> Fast and Furious. <laughs> you know what I mean? All these like name yeah, Harry Potter, things. Harry Potter. Them. Yeah, exactly. Whereas back then, that sort of mentality didn't exist in the same way. So even though Star yeah. Wars had been really popular, I think back then the people in the industry perceived it as something that was wrapped up. It was done. It was over and it was in the past. Like my dad's often told me that he picked up so many like unwanted Star Wars toys starting around 1984 and going right through to the early 90s because it was just like a bit of a dead zone in terms of Star Wars fandom. There were obviously still people who loved it and were interested, but their numbers were diminishing because there wasn't that like new mainline content, you know, to keep them engaged. And... I guess that these executives at the TV channels, they just didn't see the demand there for a new Star Wars thing, especially when it was just this bizarre, eccentric offshoot like an Ewok movie. So, yeah, I think it speaks to the context. Yeah, I guess Star Wars was the birth of all that. So it was ahead of its time, by definition. Yeah, exactly. Because now, if George Lucas was still in charge of Star Wars... He could propose anything, you know, to a TV network and they'd <laughs> bite his hand off. So like, oh yeah, I want to do a snice noodles like variety hour. And they'd be like, yes, yes, we want that. Do you think maybe people had also been a bit burned by the holiday special? 
Yeah, potentially. I do know that the holiday special had huge ratings, so it wasn't that it was like a commercial failure. But no. I think it was understood to be embarrassing. <laughs> and yeah, I could see people being afraid of embarrassment. The Ewoks and the Wookiees, there isn't too much difference as as a non Star Wars fan to like step back and you know, the intricacies of their different cultures are obviously clear to us, but um to the lay viewer, yeah, not so much. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely. The big teddy bears and the little teddy bears. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really nice um way of summing it up. I like that. Um yeah, and it's interesting the level to which George Lucas was involved in Caravan of Courage. Um, so he received a story credit and a credit for executive producing and he was involved at various points throughout so he directed the reshoots and he edited some of the scenes um, he also oversaw post-production and really just demonstrated his engagement with the whole thing and I find that notable because you know often it's kind of been perceived that George Lucas has distanced himself from these movies and they're seen as like a bit of a blot on his record and people are like oh no that wasn't really George but it was George you know he obviously wasn't as involved as he was with the mainline movies but he still took an interest and he still had certain ideas for how he wanted things to be and I find that significant because I I think the Ewok movies are quintessential George Lucas in some ways Mm. you know they're so like earnest and peculiar and old-fashioned in many ways and i think and child-centric yes very child-centric and i think they really just get to the root of many of the sensibilities that make george lucas so singular as a filmmaker and i like that me too it's so wholesome and sweet you know um yeah almost too frostingly so (laughs) (laughs) and i'm not complaining i like having my tea frosted from time to time so (laughs) not a bad thing. <laughs> no, I think it's lovely to think about George making these movies for his daughter. Yeah. No, I think it's really sweet. Um, so yeah, in terms of who actually directed it, it was a gentleman called John Courty, um, who'd won an Oscar in 1977. Um, and can you read out the name of the documentary, Kirsty? Because I just find this so fascinating. And it's a little segue, but I just have to like cover this briefly. Hmm. Who are the DeBolts and where did they get 19 kids? <laughs> It's about an American couple who adopted 14 children in addition to their five biological children. I really, really want to watch this because what the fuck? (laughs) Sorry for the bad language in an Ewok episode. I feel this should be more wholesome than wholesome. But yeah, that is a great story. And I can totally understand why you would make a documentary about a family like that. Although it does have like those like 19 kids and counting vibes, which are less wholesome. (laughs) yeah very different different family though it's all good exactly and i guess it also has a slight brady bunch vibe in terms of like combining different teams although brady bunch didn't involve adoption so i honestly ignore me i i don't i haven't seen the brady bunch before and i don't know anything about this movie beyond the title mm. i just remember when i was initially looking like once they created the vintage section on disney plus i was like wow i can finally watch caravan of courage so i was googling it and i was like Hey, this guy directed an Oscar-winning documentary. <laughs> yes. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's very unexpected, isn't it? And when we talk yeah. about the film itself, I, I actually did see certain aspects that made me recognise the director was a documentarian. So okay. I'm curious to bring those up and see if you notice the same things I did. 
Well, it does have a nature documentary vibe. Exactly. So yeah, we'll be going into that in more detail. Um, yeah, so I was interested in how John Corti came to direct this thing in the first place. And basically the answer is that he was buddies with George Lucas. So John Corti had an office at American Zoetrope, which was Francis Ford Coppola's production company in the early 70s and late 60s, I believe. Um, but yeah, it was basically fundamental to like spearheading the new American cinema movement. And George Lucas was a very important part of that movement. And Corsi and Lucas bet, basically met and became buddies before Lucas was famous. Um, so I found a profile of Corsi in the New York Post and just found a little paragraph explaining it. So it said, Corsi was invited to discuss his live action feature debut, the acclaimed The Crazy Quilt, on a panel at a 1968 librarian's convention in San Francisco. Francis Ford Coppola was also supposed to appear, but he was tied up on location. In his place, he sent a very young George Lucas, who arrived wearing sneakers and blue jeans. For a time, for a time, Corti and Lucas had adjoining offices at Coppola's Zoe Trope films. So, yeah, I, I just find that interesting, and it really underlines what, like a, like, you know, it's based on who you know, essentially in Hollywood. Like, and obviously, of course, he's talented. You know, he wouldn't have won an Oscar if he wasn't talented. But it's not the sort of job you could audition for. You know, it's just George saying to his mate, hey, John, do you have availability to do an Ewok movie? And then John being like, oh, yeah, I can fit in, sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And yeah, I just love that. It's great. Um, and yeah, so Eric Walker, who played Mace, who's the young adolescent hero, I suppose, of the film, he gave an interview to Stars.com about working with George versus working with John. Um, and I was just wondering if you could read out that quote from the interview, Kirsty. Mm-hmm. George Lucas came on board to direct one week of pickup shots. I actually have the first day reshoot call sheet that lists him as the director, for which I understand a production assistant got in tr- into trouble as it was taken off the second day's call sheet. So the actual comeback into directing by George Lucas was not on episode one, but on Caravan of Courage. George Lucas is much more technically oriented, and everything runs at a much faster pace. John Corti is more of what we call an actor's director. He gives an actor more room to work and helps us get to an emotion in a scene by making suggestions, since he knows a bit about acting. John Corti was the right choice for the job, since there was a lot of emotion going on in the Ewok movies, but I did love working with George Lucas as well, and it was nice to see the master at work. He really knew what he wanted, but conveyed it differently. He was not there every day, but he did come to the set more than once to see how things were going on. One of the pictures I have that was taken with us together was when he visited the set on the day when we were filming the Magic Pond scene on Skywalker Ranch. I would have to say he visited the set about once a week to check on things. It was obvious when he was on set or about to arrive, because suddenly the whole crew started to work much faster. <laughs> Uh-oh, boss is coming. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. And it just like adds to the like sense of like where this film fits into George Lucas's career and his own like investment in it turning out in a way that would be pleasing to him essentially because yeah he wouldn't have kept on showing up and like got involved with reshoots and things if he wasn't like invested in it to some level um so yeah that's really cool and it's interesting to me what he says about John Corti being an actor's director because like, bless, I do think there's lots of endearing qualities to the Caravan of Courage, but 
I wouldn't call it a showcase of great acting, but <laughs> at the same time, I feel mean because they're children. They're literal children and they're doing their best. Bless them. And yeah, there are highly emotional moments. So I guess I can see what he's talking about. Yeah, I can see what he's talking about in terms of like comparing how court he might be with Lucas because Lucas mm. is famously not an actor's director. Yes. So yeah, in comparison, that that observation makes sense. Yeah, it reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of the comments some of the prequel actors would make about you know like George being focused on like the green screen and like where the effects were going to go, and like the actors being a little bit of an afterthought for him. Yeah, I mean, even the bits about like you know noting that they're filming on Skywalker Ranch, you can tell the Caravan of Courage. And I guess Battle for Endor, like, it's all right there. So practically speaking, it would make sense for George to be able to show up regularly. Yeah. Right? Of course. Yeah, it's literally on his doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's great. It gives it, like, a very... It's almost like a very, very elaborate home movie, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's a very big home movie made to entertain a toddler, basically, because Amanda Lucas was free, I think, when this thing came out. <laughs> So I count a three-year-old as a toddler, or if not a toddler, a very young child. So. Oh yeah, that's a toddler. Yeah, and yeah, like Sindel, I guess is meant to be the stand-in, like the that that character that kids relate to. Exactly. So. There's a whole story about Amanda Lucas and Sindel. Like, can't wait to go into when we discuss about Frendor. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll keep everyone waiting with bated breath. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did some digging around the internet archives, and I actually found some articles that came out at the time the film was originally shown on TV which are really interesting because they frame basically the thinking about behind the film in a public facing way at the time so yeah I found this piece in particular from the Washington Post could you read it out please Kirsty I don't think it's as long as it looks because it's lots of short sentences so. <laughs> okay shortly before Once Upon a Time there were Wookiees and Ewoks in the films, according to Lucas, there were primitive creatures destined to help futuristic characters like Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, and Han Solo topple the evil empirical forces that caused such a fuss through three millennia of Star Wars movies. On the first day, George Lucas and his production forces created the Wookiee. The tall, fairy Chewbacca served as Solo's mechanic and co-pilot. Late on the third day, just in time for a part in the final Star Wars movie, Lucas created the Ewok, with the help of production designer Joe Johnston. Like the Wookiees, Ewoks were furry. Unlike the Wookiees, they were very small. In anthropological terms, they were of the Stone Age and the rawhide, wood and vine age, living in harmony with nature in thatched huts in the Endor Forest, which looks very much like Northern California. Ewoks, explained Johnston, are Wookiees spelled sideways. On the fourth day, Lucasfilm Limited and Corti Films Production created the Ewok Adventure, a movie made for both home television and later on theatrical release. In the movie, the Ewoks help two children, played by Aubrey Miller and Eric Walker, find their parents, whose spacecraft has crashed in the Endor Forest. The Ewoks, played by small adults, include such characters as Kink, their spiritual leader, Chukatrok and Deej. They are led by a child. Warwick Davis, a 14-year-old British schoolboy, plays Wicket, the littlest Ewok. Warwick has a very distinctive way of moving, and you can spot him among all the other Ewoks, noted producer Thomas Smith. When you see him on screen, there's a certain magic. He's a marvellous actor, three feet tall, but filled with energy and charm and a sense of humour, and a marvellous talent for pantomime. 
The Ewok book was set down by scribe Bob Carroll. The story of the Ewoks and the human castaways they befriend is aimed at basic human feelings, Carroll explained. I think George realised there's a really strong primal instinct in children when they're separated from their parents, noted Carroll. I think it's almost coded in our genes that if you start telling a story and you're conscientious and moral, that no matter what story you tell, it will have these innate themes. It's going to be about goodness, friendship, brotherhood, about learning from people and getting along with them, about love, magic, and being nice to your fellow Ewok. Oh. <laughs> like, honestly, I know I just keep on saying the word wholesome, but it's all just achingly wholesome, isn't it? Like, it really is. And, yeah, I like that it was also intentional, you know, because people act like, you know, the Ewok movies were somehow accidentally as simple and as trite and simplistic as they are. But that's just how they're meant to be, you know, it's like a very, very basic bedtime story for a young child, a very young child. And I think that's a, like, a bonus, not a flaw essentially you know i think that's the point of them and it is easy to like rip on these movies but it's kind of like ripping on puss in boots or something <laughs> you know it's like it is what it is it's a very simple moralizing tale and it knows it and it does exactly what it sets out to do which is tell a story about family and helping each other and being kind and yeah i think on its own terms it works just fine yeah, can I read out the last line? Because that's really, I, I love it. And I feel like it, it wraps it all up so sure. well and kind of sums up what George was trying to do here. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the narrator talking. Reunited, the families enjoy the simple pleasures of being together, having learned something that they already knew, that courage, loyalty and love are the strongest forces in the universe. <laughs> Who can <laughs> hate, that? hate on that? Yeah, Who can exactly. Hate that? Yeah, you'd have to be a monster, wouldn't you? <laughs> it's oh, lovely yeah no, it's really sweet um and yeah i liked seeing the praise for warwick davis in that article as well because yeah there is definitely something very distinctive about wicket and even though like a lot of the ewoks like i couldn't tell you which of wicket's brothers is which but i can always tell you which one's wicket and i think that's down to warwick doing such a good job in that costume so yeah it's a little superstar um, he does an amazing job considering, like, they're, they're talking in the Ewokies. Yeah. Like, obviously in the second movie, and we'll go into it more next time, but they do switch to talking basic, like, English out loud to Sindel, nice. who can then speak back. So they, they went a little easier on him that time. Yeah. I guess the in-universe explanations, I think the family have been stranded there for a couple of months, so I guess they held English classes. Which fascinates me from a chronological canon perspective because isn't this supposed to be before return of the jedi yes <laughs> so they're just screwing with han luke and leia i guess <laughs> we can totally understand you the whole time i'm gonna choose to adopt that as my interpretation now kirsty <laughs> I, I just thought oh that, well it's just because these movies don't really matter in the canon isn't it but i think that's the real reason it's showing how insidious they are so <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> Um, but yeah, one final thing I wanted to discuss briefly before we go into the film itself and what we thought about it and picking apart all the various aspects is Eric Walker and Warwick Davies were both children when they made the film. Obviously, they were teenagers 
and they had an onset tutor as they were legally bound to have due to the child labor laws which is a very good thing child labor laws are important <laughs> Um, and basically their tutor on set suggested it could be very educational for them to be given a camera and make basically a behind the scenes documentary of the experience of making Caravan of Courage. And Eric Walker, being the stand up guy that he is, he's put up the documentary, which I use bunny ears for, <laughs> um, on YouTube. And it's honestly really interesting and charming. It's very short. It's under 10 minutes. So I recommend that anyone with even a passing interest check it out because did you say you found it more entertaining than the movie? <laughs> well, it's just so endearing. Like yes. you can tell they're just having a really great time making this movie. Yeah, exactly. And it just captures a total sense of the vibe on set, doesn't it? Which, yeah, I really enjoyed. And I think I just love it because you can tell 100% it was made by teenagers. You know, it's got this like hyperactive quality. <laughs> to what they were choosing to focus on and there's like a random interlude of Warwick Davies like just drinking grape juice and putting on like a bad American accent yeah he's doing a little bit yeah. pretending to advertise the juice <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like... for a second I was like wait I thought Warwick was English <laughs> <laughs> well that's great then. it wasn't it was... that bad yeah it was clearly convincing American accent to you because you live in America so yeah wow had me fooled yeah, you have to send Warwick a note saying congratulations <laughs> for your sterling American accent. Um, but yeah, I just really enjoyed it. It was very endearing, like Kirsty said. Um, what were your favourite aspects of that documentary, Kirsty? Um, I guess like seeing, because as you say, it's like by the kids, but they're like interviewing the the adults mm. and they're talking like John Courtney's talking about like, well, we have great actors. You know, it's going to be a great movie, and it's just like. I don't know, it's just feel good. It kind of reminded me of the Phantom Menace documentary. Yeah. Um, it's just like the, the excitement that they have around creating something together. Yeah. And I like that they chose to focus on certain things. Like they were very interested in the person who was preparing the hand, like the hang glider for the flying scene in the movie. Um, and there was a big emphasis on that. Um, and yeah, there were lots of like adorable shots of Aubrey Miller playing Sindel, who was just looking at them like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> obviously without understanding and yeah I also liked seeing the like Ewok actors um, who were in the suits but without the heads and just like lying back and chilling and I I really enjoyed those moments because I can yeah you know like um, little people I think often they're seen purely in the costumes you know they don't get a chance to be humanised at all typically so I think just seeing them as like regular people just talking like to the other actors on set, I, I think that's really nice because it gives a sense of the people behind those creatures and that's really cool. Yeah, and they were just kind of like ribbing Warwick and <laughs> making fun of his basketball skills and yes. stuff. Like they're just they're hanging out and having a good time. Yeah, no, it was really nice and it just seemed like a really fun set, I think, which is lovely. So I think especially when kids are involved, you want to think it was a really nice, positive, happy, safe place for them to work. And it very much seems like it was. Yeah. You also pointed out that they, they show a bit of them actually like, I don't know if they're like rehearsing, but they look like they're about to film a scene. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're reading out the line to Sindel or Aubrey to then repeat it and that might be like how they ended up filming a lot of those scenes because she was just so young you know she couldn't like read a script by herself and learn the lines yeah no, exactly yeah. she's a baby basically 
And yeah, it was it just very must sweet. have been such a. Obviously, she was so young, and I'm hoping that she just had a great time, you know. But it's also like, did she? How how much was she able to grasp of the story as they were making it, and like, you know, give any kind of like conscious performance of the meaning behind those lines? I guess you could probably relate to like feeling sad about missing her parents and stuff. Yeah. I actually have a quote coming up from Albury. Um, uh, like I won't read it right now, so it fits in better later. But yeah, I I think the main thing with Albury is obviously she was so young, she doesn't really remember much. Because right. I don't know about you, but I think back to when I was four, and I have barely any memories at all. I'm, I don't. I I have a terrible memory in general, but yeah, especially early childhood. I'm like, nope. <laughs> yeah, it's just a- just based on the photos that we have. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's that whole thing where. Do I remember that or is that just a story my parents told me, basically? Which I think is a very common experience of childhood. Um, Okay, so we now have the prelude to Caravan of Courage out of the way because there is just so much meat on these bones, basically, guys. I hope you're (laughs) excited. So now is time to actually go into discussion of the film. So I've broken this down into several components because we want to make sure we do it justice. Um, so I wanted to start off with the story. So what were your general impressions of the story, Kirsty? Um, it's so simple that you almost feel like there isn't much of a story. <laughs> yes. And probably shaped by the, the choices with the pacing as well. It's very kind of meandering and like the bumbling along. And then suddenly you have like an exciting bit of adventure and, you know, they're in danger briefly, but it's... Uh, it's very soothing. Yeah. <laughs> You're just kind of along for the ride. But yeah, it's extremely simple. They're just trying to find their parents and they make friends along the way and they have to wrestle creatures and get back to safety and all. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I was racking my brains and also checking Wikipedia um, to see what the influences for the story were. Um, and the first one that came to my mind when I was watching it was Swiss Family Robinson. Um, which is obviously a very old book from the 1800s and it was adapted into a very popular Disney film in 1960. Um, and it's basically about a family who is stranded on an island and they have to like figure out how they're going to survive basically in this strange terrain. Um, and it's really just the family is stranded in an alien environment aspect that's similar to the film. But it stood out to me, so I thought that was valid and worth mentioning. Um, another influence is Hansel and Gretel um, and that's there basically in that sense of the children being separated from their parents and needing to find their way back to them yeah and, like a babes in the wood yeah like they're literally in the forest so exactly yeah so I think all of that is very conscious um, and also Tarzan of the Apes um, and yeah I think that's obviously there in the human Ewok relations aspect of the story it's like about this conflict between the civilized world and the like native world and the wildlife and like how can they reconcile and how can they work together to like pursue like good goals at the end of it and yeah i i think all of those facets are there to some extent and i think it's also important to note that those are all influences that would have been very familiar to george lucas particularly with stuff like Tarzan and the Swiss Family Robinson George would have seen the movies of those things Mm. and yeah whether consciously or subconsciously they would have fed into his 
understanding of storytelling basically and the tropes that he had to play around with yeah because he as we said like it's it's technically a star wars movie but like it's about as far away as you can get from like that sensibility of the space opera yes you know so very different influences and very different overall vibe exactly and it's interesting because there are certain facets of it that are very similar to souls like i'd argue that aspects of mace's journey they parallel the hero's journey you know the typical oh, yeah. joseph campbell version and there's certain aspects of the film where that's really really obvious like the scene where they're giving out the magical objects to the different members of the crew basically that is very very straight out of campbell and yeah like you said it's fascinating because even though it might be similar to campbell in that way it couldn't feel more different in execution and tone yeah and it's also stuff like maybe we're getting a bit off track here talking about the specific moments but stuff like the crystal and it's like all these things that could be really great if they'd just gone a bit deeper but they're they're kind of like ticking things off of it, it kind of does feel like Campbellian in that sense of like this is what we need for the hero's journey this is what we need this is what we need we need this and this and this and then this moment um but they maybe could have been fleshed out and made a bit more compelling yeah with a bit more time and yeah and i think that's it because like all the like building blocks are there you know of like compelling mythical story but it's just handled in a way where it all feels so simplistic and basic where it lacks that grander mythic sense that the mainline films have i think Mm. and yeah i i think it just goes to show what a huge difference like execution makes essentially so there's obviously all those famous stories about the original star wars where you know the story is that it wasn't like up to snuff until marsha lucas came in and did her edit and really tightened it up you know made it more like impactful and move along at a clip and also the score you know can you imagine star wars without that amazing john williams score and i'm not saying there's nothing like extra in george lucas's direction that makes that movie great because that obviously is but it's sort of like this magic combination of all these different elements and caravan of courage has some of the elements that make star wars great but it's lacking a whole lot of them i think Mm. and yeah that's what we're picking up on although you mentioning the score reminds me that i do quite like the music yes (laughs) it's that little trill (laughs) yeah yeah no the music is good um i think it's very tv you know, you can tell it's not like that grand scale score that you get for the movies. But I think it's like really solid for what it is and it has some really nice melodies. Yeah, I think it works well for the story. Yeah. But it just adds to that sweet little vibe. Exactly. Um, and yeah, there's other aspects of it that also make it feel very distinct from the theatrical films. Like the fact that it has the narration. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah it's always oh, so corny but I kind of love it you know it should be cringe but it just circles around to be like endearing to me as yeah. like, if it almost feels like a Christmas film you know so it's like a ca- kindly old man and you can imagine you're like a little kid and it's Santa Claus and you're sat on his knee and he's like telling you a story about the Ewoks <laughs> yeah he's like in a rocking chair reading a book yes <laughs> exactly and yeah, and I think on a very, very simple level, 
that is there because you can't have a written opening crawl like you can with the theatrical movies because the target audience for this film cannot read. The target audience for this film is Amanda Lucas who's free and almost certainly cannot read. <laughs> so. But also like you need someone to explain the story if your main characters are what how old was Aubrey when she was filming this? Four, Three? I think. Four. Yeah. And and Ewoks who in this movie do not speak English. Yes. They they speak their own made up Ewokies where you have the subtitles, but it's like I don't know. I put the subtitles on when I was watching it on Disney Plus and they didn't really help <laughs> because it's just like Ewokies and then like spelling out, you know, in in the alphabet what they would be saying. Oh like, wow just nonsense words why, why the commitment of the subtitles <laughs> to actually transcribing that to be honest it's not, yeah wow so oh my god but yeah no you're right um you need the narrator otherwise it is like the wookies and the holiday special just like extended scenes of you not really understanding what's going on <laughs> god yeah that was a nightmare charming in its own way yeah i'd like to see the disney plus subtitles for the wookie um dialogue <laughs> the holiday special <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is what I was actually talking about earlier when I mentioned about seeing John Corti's documentary instincts in the film. I think it was really only in those very early scenes where we just see the Ewoks living their lives, basically, and talking their own language. That it was very like nature documentary-esque, almost like David Attenborough, but with Ewoks. <laughs> and yeah, I enjoyed that, especially because of the interplay between the narration and the scenes that we, we were being shown. Yeah, it added to the film. Like when I put it on, I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to pay attention to this, like just sitting here watching it doing nothing else. Sure. But, you know, it, it was kind of like you put on a documentary, you know, a David Attenborough kind of thing, as you say, and then, you know, get some stuff done in the living room. Get, get, <laughs> get the hoover out. Done. Get the hoover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pay attention to the exciting stuff and then just kind of let it wash over you. It was, it was very relaxing. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I guess that it's very hard to like focus on like the overall direction of the narrative or anything. It is very simple. The children need help to save their parents. They get that help from the Ewoks. They form the Caravan of Courage title <laughs> and then they go and fight the monster. Is the monster called the Gorax? Kirsty, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, they fight the Gorax and Mace saves his parents and everyone's reunited and happy again. So that is the story and it's just amazing the quantity of padding that's necessary to fill out <laughs> that time. <laughs> well, they have to run into endless dangerous creatures and have scary encounters and fall into a magic pool and not be able to get out. Yeah, and I think this goes back to that point I made very early on about the network requiring this to fill two hours of time. Because <laughs> honestly, I think in an optimal world, based on the story George Lucas originally envisaged, it's probably meant to be an hour. You know, I was going to say, you could do 45 minutes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that would have honestly worked much better, you know, really tighten it up and just get it down to the essentials. Um, but as it is, it's just a lot of wandering around and and to be fair lots of cute moments like there were some cute little touches like i really liked the fact they have the horses and there's that one horse with an enormous pack on it and it has like this little hole in it and cindle and wicket have to like go into the hole and they're like carried along in this pack on the horse and i was just watching that and thinking how awesome that would be to me as a kid 
you know so I was all about going into like little small cozy spaces and like reading a book you know and like dreaming about adventures I'd have and that was like crack for me (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I could see that being very appealing to a child yeah definitely there's lots of cute moments it's just I mean you know if you've seen these movies (laughs) yeah it's got a very a very ambling rambling pace which if you're in the mood for it it's wonderful but I can see it being frustrating for people who are like I expected a Star Wars movie (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly I think some of the cynicism about it is understandable um but yeah we're here to counter the cynicism with our pure joy and delight over this film so yeah that's good um okay so let's move on to talk about the characters the great great characters of Caravan of Courage um so we'll start off with Sindel who is genuinely my favorite character in this movie like actually yeah let's say it now who is your favorite character in Caravan of Courage Kirsty it's Sindel obviously good that's the only correct answer who else would it be (laughs) (laughs) I thought you might be like a mace stan who knows no (laughs) (laughs) no no I'm just teasing you I'm just pulling your leg bless him like okay he's not as bad as I remember from my first time viewing and I feel bad because there is this like tradition almost in the Star Wars fandom of like hating on the teenage boy characters because they do have that whininess and I, I guess I I didn't I wasn't immediately in, endeared to him because he was kind of rude to the Ewoks yeah he's like food we need food uh <laughs> like my sister's hurt and it's just he's stressing out because they don't know where their parents are and his sister's sick yeah but yeah he can be a bit obnoxious <laughs> exactly so yeah we'll, co- we'll cover Mace a little bit in a moment but um, Sindel is very sweet. I mean, she literally looks like a little cherub, doesn't she? She really does. And it's always like ridiculous with those like little golden curls at the top of her head. It's like, this yeah, is just rosy absurd. Cheeks. <laughs> it's very cute. You can tell what happened in the casting office. They just brought in like a ton of kids. And then when they the casting director saw like Aubrey Miller, she's like, that's the cutest kid I've seen all day. <laughs> You're it. <laughs> because yeah it, you obviously can expect like precocious acting talent from a four-year-old basically it does happen you know like drew barrymore and dakota fanning and stuff you get very young actors who are really talented but for the most part yeah they can't even read guys <laughs> they're not going to be memorizing the script in advance and they're not going to be like internalizing the like raw emotions that the character is going through in the way that an adult actor could so yeah, I think given the circumstances, Aubrey Miller did a really good job, to be honest. She does exactly what she needs to do, which is look cute, be helpless, and like just look adorable when she's rescued. And yeah. Yeah, and you you believe her developing friendship with Wicket. That's that's the centre of it. So Exactly. And I think I also really loved how genuine she seemed throughout the whole thing. Like you can really buy that she is like accepting what's going on around her. You know, in a way that I, I think you can tell the actors playing her parents distinctly do not accept what's going on around them. <laughs> and they're the bloody grown-up professionals. They should this be able to do thing. it. I thought I bought into Sindel as a character much more because she just, she is all in on it. And she probably is at the age where she kind of believes it on a level that the, yeah, the adult actors obviously did not and kind of phoned it in, let's be honest. Yeah, exactly. So to answer one of your questions about Sindel, could you read out a quote from an interview that Aubrey Miller gave to StarWars.com, please? 
If my memory serves me right, I'm pretty sure once the costume went on oh, once the costume went on Warwick, in my eyes, he was an Ewok. As far as Warwick as a person, he and Eric were in their teens and doing their own thing. I was just a young child. I do remember all of us getting together off set with our families and hanging out. <laughs> yeah. And I think obviously it's very simple because yeah, she just doesn't remember. You know, you don't remember stuff from when you were four years old. But I just like that detail about the costume going on Warwick and him just becoming Wicket for her. I think that's really sweet. Yeah. Um. Okay, cool. So let's move into Mace. The And I'd argue that if this film has a protagonist, it's Mace. Because he actually gets the character revolution and the journey. You know, much more than Sindel does. Because Sindel is much more like there to be an object to be saved and rescued. You know, I think she has much more of a development arc in the next film. Mm. Um, whereas here, Mace, he's like the Luke, he's the Anakin. You know, he starts off like all impulsive and hot-headed and makes countless mistakes. But then over the course of the story, he becomes a bit more mature and more responsible. And yeah, I, I think it's like a solid arc. Again, it's basic and it goes back to the conversation we were having about the execution of the whole thing and it not having that level of dramatic impact like Luke's story or Anakin's story has but I think it's sufficient for what this is but I I still don't love Mace but I can see what they were going for you know and he definitely does grow as a character by the end of it all well yeah I do see him as like an alternate to Luke you know that it is like okay you got to separate the teenager from the parents in order for him to grow up and take on these challenges himself and like develop that self-confidence and that's kind of what we see and then by the end he's reunited with them but he's rescued them so you know he's joined them in adulthood yep so. exactly he's the responsible one now and he also has to become the caregiver to his little sister as well which yeah mm. is another marker of his maturity um and yeah i also just want to quickly give eric walker who played him a shout out so he seems like a real stand-up guy he like gives lots of interviews about his experience as mace and I honestly feel really sorry for him about his lack of participation in Battle for Endor. Um, we'll go more into that in the Battle for Endor episode. But yeah, you can tell he really liked playing this character and loved being involved in the Star Wars universe, basically. And I always like it when that happens. You know, I like enthusiasm. So yeah, he's a good guy. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I've got the parents. My notes here are, haha, they barely count. They're really just MacGuffins who motivate the plot. They don't have real personalities to speak of. They don't, but in a way that almost, it kind of is a good reminder of like who this movie was for and the characters that it does center around. Like when you're maybe as young as Sindel, you probably don't see your parents as fleshed out human beings. They're just the people who look after you. <laughs> so <laughs> That's actually very true. That's a great point. It's just so funny when they get to the end and like they think that Mace is gone and it's just like, oh, we thought we'd lost you. But the mum, like the way she delivers that, it's just so like out of it, like not <laughs> not with the level of seriousness and emotion that you'd expect from a parent who just thought the kid had died. Like It's extremely disengaged. It's really, it's really funny. <laughs> Phoning it in. Yeah. No, it is really funny. And like Kirsty had to point out to me that the actor playing the dad actually changed between Caravan of Courage and Battle for Endor. I had no idea. Yes. I had forgotten, but I in my mind I was like, Oh, it's the guy who plays the vice principal in the Breakfast Club and then I put on Caravan of Courage again. I was like, Wait, no, that's not him, he just looks like him. 
but that is him in Battle for Endor, <laughs> so it's just a different dad. <laughs> yeah. Let's not acknowledge it. Yes, yeah, just a very brief spoiler for my opinion on Battle for Endor, but I was actually really, I've only watched the first 10 minutes, but I was very impressed by the acting of the dad, like early on when he's talking to Sindel, I won't spoil what happens, but yeah, there's quite an emotional scene. I was like, wow, he's really bringing it here. In a way, he's he just, a legit actor. Yeah, yeah, it's like he's bringing it in a way he did not at all bring it in Caravan of Courage. And that explains I, it. So it's a different guy. I want to know the story of how they got that guy for this. Because, well, for that, for Battle for Endor. Because <laughs> it's like any Ian McKellen. <laughs> not quite, but <laughs> maybe he's a big Star Wars fan. I don't know. Yeah, sorry, I'm imagining Ian McKellen as Sindel Stard now. <laughs> stupid um but yeah um then on to the ewok characters um obviously the main one is wicket and i don't know about you kirsty but i was honestly surprised by like i i do love wicket and i stand by what i said earlier about him always having presence on screen you know and you always know it's wicket rather than another random ewok but in terms of importance to the narrative and having a role to play i felt like he was less important than i expected him to be yeah he doesn't really come into his own until battle for endor in my opinion okay no spoilers <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to know yeah because it is like the caravan of courage so it is more like a group project doesn't it yeah and they've got you know the priestess and yeah the warriors and it's just yeah wicket's just I, maybe it's a coming of age for wicket and he's just a young a little young ewok at it in the first movie and then comes into his own like maybe that's the point yeah because this film definitely recontextualizes wicket in terms of his family unit because he's kind of just on his own in return of the jedi but Mm. in this film you learn that he has a whole nuclear family with a mom a dad two brothers and a baby sister so did you realize that baby ewok was um wicket's baby sister kirsty no (laughs) it was (laughs) Uh, and apparently that baby sister is a slightly older Ewok in the animated Ewoks canon so it's all it okay. all flows it all intersects so right. that's very exciting we to have me. to watch more of, I'm going to have to watch some of that later yeah exactly I'm going to turn us all into like Ewok heads so yeah I'm going to become super hardcore um, yeah did you have any particularly strong feelings about the other Ewoks in the party Kirsty any faves that stood up to you um not really. <laughs> I did like the Ewok priestess, but purely I was because say, it was a girl Ewok. Name one, yeah, she's probably the one that I'm paying the most attention to. Yeah. But... I was like, finally, <laughs> like diversity <laughs> in the Ewok population. But yeah, that was like the only real bright spot that stood out to me. Like, I know one of them dies at the end, but I couldn't really tell you which one. I don't think it's one of Wicket's direct family members, because that would make them too important. Isn't it the warrior guy who Mace doesn't like initially? So they have, like, that rivalry, and he's like, oh, is he going to come with us? (laughs) And then it's like, he died to save us. (laughs) That that sounds right to me. (laughs) So, yeah, I I think you're probably right on the money there. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, so I think that's the characters pretty much covered. Um... Just briefly wanted to provide a few thoughts on the world of this film and how it connects to the wider Star Wars universe. My first observation is horses. I was surprised to see just completely (laughs) normal, unadorned horses in the Star Wars universe. I was like, oh, okay. They like horses in Star Wars. There's lots of horses and horse-like creatures in the, the sequel trilogy. Maybe 
they were influenced by the Ewok movies. <laughs> yes, maybe, maybe that there's like evolutionary links between human horses and like whatever the horses are called in Rise of Skywalker. Like, so that they are basically horses, and they were horses on set. We had set photos showing the bloody horses with the ridiculous costumes. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got the Favias for the Last Jedi, but of course they're they're different. They're a little bit more augmented, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> um, and yeah, I think there was also llamas. And the llamas were possibly even more jarring than the horses. It's like, what the fuck? Why are the llamas in Star Wars? Because they have llamas by Skywalker Ranch. And they're just like, yeah, let's just have those in the movie. Why not? I think that's exactly it. And it's obviously, like, on a basic level, it all comes down to budget, right? It's it's a cheaply made film. And it costs money to, like, augment them and make them fancier than their Earth equivalents. So, yeah, for, in terms of economising, I totally get it, and it's all good. Um, in terms of additions to Star Wars canon, I must say I loved the Wisties. They were probably the yes. highlight of the film for me. I also liked how they were done on a technical level, because it was very, yeah. very simple, but I thought it was effective. And, yeah, it just really captured that like magical fairy tale quality I think the film's going for. It was quite impressive. If someone doesn't know what we're talking about with Wisties, it's just the the Tinkerbell character. I, I didn't catch their name on the first viewing. Sure. I did on the second, but yeah. It's quite it's quite a magical addition to the movie. Yeah, because now we all know that Star Wars has fairies, and that's very important, at least to me. Um, and yeah, we mentioned this briefly, but bizarrely, this film is apparently a prequel to Return of the Jedi, which... Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Nothing that happens in this film has any consequence in the events of Return of but the like, Jedi. But like, how much of a prequel? Is it like pre A New Hope? And that's a good question. So the thing is, like in this film, Wicket is clearly framed as a young child. You know, he has a baby sister and then he's the next youngest. So I got this sense he was like equivalent to Sindel in age. You know, he's meant to be like four or five, whatever that is in Ewok years. And... Yeah, it's just how old is Wicket in Return of the Jedi relative to this, basically, is one of the most important questions. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think this might be a question for the scholars, um, and we are not scholars. So if you are. I just don't think there's a definitive answer. Yeah, and I really doubt much thought was given to it, to be honest. It really doesn't matter. I just want to know how, how the Ewoks are living during the Imperial Age. Like, is. Is that impacting their lives at all? Yeah, you've got to think this is during the Imperial Age, right? And in Return of the Jedi, like I'd need to watch it again, but I get the impression Endor has been under Imperial control for a long time. You know, like it doesn't look like a new thing that there's that Imperial base on the moon. So, yeah, you'd think that would all be there at the time of Caravan of Courage. It's definitely not. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, if it is, it's like just completely going on elsewhere and the two things are not intersecting at all. And that's very funny. I can't remember where I heard it, but I think Eric Walker was told that it could be like hundreds of years before Return of the Jedi, which is obviously not the case because Wicket <laughs> is the same character. Unless the Ewoks live for thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it would just be completely ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I like that it's a fanciful idea, but it makes no sense. So yeah, I think this mystery will remain unsolved within the boundaries of this podcast. But if you have a clever solution to this, please send us an email because we would genuinely like to know. But it really does add to the effect of this 
movie just kind of being its own comforting bubble because there is no sense of that larger conflict between women star wars yeah like, there's no no references to the empire or the republic or you know it's just this family have been separated and they need to find each other and i must say in a way that's kind of comforting and nice yeah. because like i am enjoying bad batch but to use it as a point of comparison almost every episode of bad batch so far or at least for the last couple there has been like a major appearance from a clone wars character of some description you know and it's all very heavily about tying the bad batch into the canon and the mythos of that pre-existing show which makes sense because bad batch takes place literally right at the end of clone wars sure like it is basically a sequel but yeah this is like the other end of the spectrum where it's like not connected to anything exactly and it's interesting because it could have easily been much more directly connected because this only came out a year after return of the jedi and that was the film in which the ewoks were first introduced you know so they're very closely linked really return of the jedi and the caravan of courage but they really do not feel it at all (laughs) it feels like a different universe almost that just happens to have the same like type of alien in it and yeah it's kind of fascinating they will probably never do this but there's now the hint of a possibility because they've acknowledged them and they've put them in this vintage collection on disney plus so they're gonna get more people watching them and becoming familiar with them Mm. but there's always the possibility that they could like do a retelling of the ewok movies and like connect it to the wider canon yeah like they could adapt them into like a novel that does include references to all the wider conflict and kind of contextualize it in a specific year and i would like, i would honestly love that i would love that and i would love to see sindal become like a canon character and hopefully still become a space reporter like she becomes in legends because <laughs> i want to see more like just regular people you know doing quite normal jobs in Star Wars. yeah i really want to see the rest of sindal's life now yeah exactly that's an important story that needs to be told so I also briefly wanted to touch upon the message and ideology. <laughs> People are going to laugh at me. <laughs> of Caravan of Courage. So we've already spoken about that concluding narration, which is very sweet and wholesome. Reunited, the families enjoy the simple pleasures of being together, learning something they already knew, that courage, loyalty and love are the strongest forces in the universe. And that's all well and good. But is there more that's being communicated? <laughs> Well, I also, I just love that moment. Obviously, it is like the happy ending to the story, but it is like, you know, an alternate take on Return of the Jedi. Like all the Ewoks having fun, celebrating together with their human friends. Exactly. Like it's it's very nice. Yeah. So I'm about to like complicate and like raise like new layers to this movie, Kirsty. So I hope you're prepared for your mind to be slightly blown. Okay. So I found a great book chapter called... The Battle for Endor, Ewok Television Films as Transmedia Brand Extension by J. Richard Stevens. Um, And this was included in a book called The Transmedia Franchise of Star Wars TV. And it's genuinely fascinating, so I recommend people go and check it out. Um, So there's several quotes I picked out. And the first one was, The film is a deeper exploration of and statement on Ewok, Ewok society and values. So I'll read this out. Even without common speech... The Ewoks communicate through gestures and actions, using a communication of caring for others, sharing resources and benevolence as an expressed intercultural language compatible with the new left values of Lucas 
and in sharp contrast to the imperialism shown in intercultural interactions in the main theatrical films. The Ewoks perform the noble savages trope, innocent of the corrupted politics of the galaxy far, far away, and as active agents of benevolence, powerful enough to affect the lives of those they encounter. The caravan of courage is assembled through careful selection. The group encounters Logray, the Ewok medicine man who appeared in Return of the Jedi, who gathers them for what the narrator tells the audience is a traditional Ewok ceremony. <laughs> in which Logray can, as the narrator says, bestow upon them the sacred totems of the legendary Ewok warriors. This scene is meant to establish a predestination sentiment to the quest. Each item has a particular use, necessary to the success of the quest, but also to connect the Ewok actions to Ewok lore. By integrating the symbols of the past into the present quest, the Ewoks demonstrate the transmission of their cultural values between generations. And I'm like only like smiling and laughing, not because this doesn't make sense. It makes perfect sense. And I think it's a completely logical and valid reading of what's going on. But it's just amazing to me that anyone has thought so deeply about this. Well, you know, we we brought it up when we read the Return of the Jedi novelization. And obviously it's been a discussion point in the fandom and beyond since Return of the Jedi came out, the Ewoks do, as this writer says, kind of embody that noble savage trope. Yes. And there are definitely tones there of, yeah, colonialism and, um, I, yeah. It's it's just a kind of a case of whether you want to go there in your discussion or not, because it's, it's, it's kind of blatant, right? Yeah. I mean... And it's a whole kind of I don't know how much kids would pick up on it, but... <laughs> Well, you could always use it as a teaching moment. But, you know, like, you know, you brought up Tarzan earlier. It's hard to kind of get away from that of like, especially as, you know, we brought up how angelic um, Aubrey looked in, you know, her blonde curls and her pale skin with the rosy cheeks. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, the, it's there. Exactly. I think it underlines the fact that Lucas is heavily influenced by what are really very retrograde models of storytelling you know and you couldn't make this now you know i i feel like is it's not blatantly offensive you know it's not that bad in terms of his use of these tropes but it's extremely old-fashioned i think yeah. it's fair to say um and yeah it is a little it can be a little bit patronizing i suppose in you know, how it treats cultures that are obviously reminiscent of like native cultures you know and there's the suggestion of like these like primitive peoples basically well you can see that in the way that star wars chooses to approach their versions of stories that they tell now like in the mandalorian the way they depict the tuscan raiders yeah you know the mandalorian learns to communicate with them and it's it's challenged like is it um toro calican like he he refers to them as savages or whatever and it's like actually you know you just need to talk to them and ask them permission to go on their land yeah exactly so. and i think that's one of the best aspects of the newer star wars canon the fact that it is revisiting these like retrograde aspects of the stories and these like stock characters and is like complicating them and treating them in a more respectful way so yeah that's really cool I also found there was another section that basically discussed the Ewok human interactions and like what's going on there basically in terms of the meaning that's coming across. Could you read those quotes that I have there, Kirsty? Mm -hmm. 
Though ideological discourses do not depend on the conscious intentions of those who create them, understanding Lucas's motives for the Ewok television films is important, given that they are unlike any of the theatrically released Star Wars films. Set as a prequel to the events of Return of the Jedi, Caravan of Courage and Battle for Endor give viewers a chance to explore the forest moon of Endor beyond the battleground setting of the film. The television films, and later the animated television show, portray an Endor teeming with life, featuring many different beings and species. Although the title of the film includes the catchphrase an Ewok adventure, the film itself mostly centres around the human Tawani family, which is stranded upon Endor. A more fitting title might have been an adventure with Ewoks, because, like most Star Wars texts, the cognitive estrangement present in the film does not explore alien perspectives or motives beyond aesthetic qualities, and the non-human Ewoks mostly portray traditional human social behaviour in support of the human character's agenda. Furthermore, any alien or non-human social statement presented by the Ewoks breaks down in favour of the moralism of fairy tale. Caravan of Courage offers an exploration of Endor from a child's perspective, with the Ewoks serving as supportive guides. In the opening sequence, Jeremit and Katarin Tawani search for their missing children, Mace and Sindel Tawani, but are captured by a giant Gorax. The Ewoks discover the children the next day, and the film presents a quest to reunite the family. The teenage Mace also undergoes a coming-of-age character arc in which he learns to appreciate and respect his parents in a reinforcement of old-fashioned family values. Sindel's golden locks and innocence are almost characters of their own, and the four-year-old girl likely represents Lucas's intended target audience for the film. As Mace experiences his character arc, and Sindel continues in her helpless innocence, the Ewoks facilitate the journey in family restoration. The caravan is successful, though not without great sacrifice. Shukatrok is mortally wounded in the final confrontation with the Gorax. Mace, who had previously challenged Shukatrok and the Ewoks at several turns, is humbled as Shukatrok mutters the word friend and hands him his axe just before dying. Mace then uses the axe to finally kill the Gorax. The family is reunited. Mace apologises to his parents and Jeremy expresses his pride in his son's actions, completing the coming-of-age journey. And so it is that in the Ewok adventure, the Ewoks take the majority of the risks, share the most intimate portions of their culture, risk and sacrifice lives, travel to forbidden territory to reunite a human family, and teach a teenager to respect others. In the fairy tale framing of the story, this adventure was preordained in Ewok mysticism and history, all to serve the needs of one human nuclear family. And I think that really wraps it up nicely, doesn't it, in terms of what's going on. Like, And it is like it is kind of overt you know this is literally the story it's what happens on the surface but i feel like you don't necessarily think of it in these terms you know so it does make it somewhat more insidious (laughs) these are the kind of things we were just talking about though yeah yeah no no they were like they've dressed it up in like you know academic language yeah yeah. they are kind of just describing what happens exactly um but yeah i i just find interesting i guess because again it feeds into what we were saying about those retrograde tropes doesn't it and you know a story like swiss family robinson it happens on like a faraway tropical island but that story has no interest in the people who might actually be native to that faraway tropical island it has an interest in the white family who happen to be shipwrecked there and all the hijinks and adventures they get up to you know it's a foreign in air quotes place that's used as this like learning experience uh, and this like means of facilitating character growth for all these white characters basically and specifically a white nuclear family and yeah the actual 
like natives to that place they they're used but they're almost like tools used for the like protagonists development and yeah i'm sorry i feel like i'm just killing all the joy in these films now by pointing all this out but yeah it's definitely there basically yeah it's pretty that's the story like it's pretty clearly um even on a surface level reading like i don't know maybe george didn't consciously integrate that stuff but yeah i feel like battle for endor is a little better with that because it's clear at that point that they've been living there for a while yeah yeah sindal and wicker have become close friends and i think the fact that they can speak a common language at that point does help yeah it Um, must make them feel more like equals i suppose in that story yeah yeah and i guess this also makes me more interested to see the ewoks cartoon without human characters yeah Yeah. exactly because in that presumably it's just about the ewoks on their own terms you know it's not about the ewoks help a human family i'm sure there's like some stories where that happens you know but i'd imagine for the bulk of it it's the ewoks doing it for themselves and just going through their culture and traditions and exploring their own territory and yeah i like the sound of that it sounds cool yeah i guess even in return of the jedi while you know of course that endor is occupied by the empire there's not this sense of i don't know it's like they're kind of untouched by it until leia encounters wicket and then it's like okay well we'll help you guys defeat the empire but it's yeah it's a distinct cultural by itself it's not touched by those elements yeah definitely um Cool. So do you have anything else you want to say about the meaning and ideology of the Ewok films? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, I'm so, honestly, I, I can't describe how pleased I was when I found this book chapter. I was like, this is like crack to me. This is exactly what I needed. So yeah, that was a great feeling. No, it, it kind of puts it into words, like how you feel when you're watching these films. It's like, it's it's enjoyable in its simplicity, but obviously it's part of a tradition of storytelling that is not without its problems yeah and as you said it's pretty pretty outdated at this point yeah like george would not make this same kind of movie today no definitely not and even if he wanted to no one would give him money to (laughs) (laughs) sorry um yeah so now we just want to round out by like discussing some of the reviews and how the film was received so astonishingly 65 million people were watching abc when this was shown like, and wow. that sort of figure seems completely unfathomable today. Um, but yeah, it was such a different landscape then. I'm not sure exactly how many TV channels there were available to most Americans in 1984. But I know it was only a tiny fraction of the number they can get now. And obviously the streaming and stuff now. And yeah, it was just a massive, massive hit in the ratings. So that explains why we got Battle Friend or guys. Do you want me to read out this review? Um, yeah, and I found some reviews from the time because, yeah, I was just interested by what did people even make of this, you know, because it was so different and so weird relative to the films. Um, so, yep, the first one is from the New York Times. Could you read it out, please, Kirsty? Much of the film, then, is devoted to the quest of the spacecraft children to find their parents, who have been taken to the mountain home of the fearsome Gorax. Accompanied by a contingent of Ewoks, they set out in one of those classic situations that filmmakers love to call primal. Supposedly abandoned by their parents, they will prove their unswerving love and devotion by rescuing mum and dad from the forces of evil. At the same time, they will learn the eternal values of friendship, goodness and brotherhood. The basic formula for heroic fantasy remains remarkably unchanged through the centuries. 
Mr. Lucas and crew do not come up with anything terribly astonishing. There are the standard tricks, including the darting beam of light that becomes a full-fledged character, but the routines, ranging from Mace's mirror image being trapped momentarily beneath the surface of a pond, to battling a giant spider in Gorax's fortress, are handled with skill. Mr. Corty's direction of the photography, and Peter Bernstein's martial score, out of the school of John Williams, help immeasurably in transforming rather ordinary scenes into settings of foreboding. Yeah, so I wanted to include this, because obviously the poor little Ewok films get a bit of a bad rap, but some people liked them. <laughs> well, this isn't gushingly positive. It's not, but it's the most positive I could find, Kirsty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is like, yeah, it's rote and tired, but it's fine. Yeah, it's alright. <laughs> he says there was some skill on display, so I, I think that's pretty, like, bold. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, there are unfortunately also more negative reviews. Um, I, I tried to include negative reviews where they were at least written in a fun way, because I didn't want to just like read out negativity for the sake of it, because that's sad and we don't want to rag on things. Um, but yeah, I thought these were kind of entertainingly written. Could you read out the review from the Christian Science Monitor, please, Kirsty? First, I must preface my criticism with some facts about my own distaste for puppets, muppets, gremlins, or any other simulated live creature. No matter how funny they start out to be, by the time a half hour has rolled by, I find myself yearning for good old-fashioned human beings, real dogs and frogs, and even pigs. Sorry, Miss P. So although the Ewoks were certainly cute little fellows for a few sequences in Jedi, they are just too darling for me to bear for two primetime hours early Saturday or Sunday morning, when only the kids are awake and roving, maybe. But even then, a lot of children would demand more than two hours of little men dressed in bad grizzly bear costumes. Photographed mostly in redwood and desert territory on Earth, the American West, which has a wonderful extraterrestrial look, the sometimes scary for youngsters film is narrated by kindly Burl Ives. It has just enough monster murder scenes to frighten the youngest kids into the arms of their parents, who are, ABC hopes, watching the film with them. More likely, they're dozing off. The Ewok adventure is fine family fun for families who are willing to have their fun on the level of the youngest member, and there are undoubtedly many families who will simply adore the little fellows in their grizzly bear outfits, but for me, Ewok only proves once again that too much of a good thing can be too much of a good thing. I realise that being bored by the Ewoks is almost sacrilegious, like telling an orphan there's no Santa Claus, so call me Scrooge. <laughs> and yeah, I just liked that, so it yeah, it embodies like lots of attitudes you still see today relative to the Ewoks. You know, it's like ah, that's just kiddie stuff. But I mean, there's something interesting to me about seeing it so early. You know, seeing that it's been a sentiment for such a long time. I do understand it. Like these, these movies are obviously for very young kids. And while I enjoy the Ewoks and Return of the Jedi, as you said at the beginning, they're not your favorite thing about that movie. Sure. So. I admit, when it came to rewatching these films for, for this podcast, and maybe because I had watched them not too long ago, like just when they put them on Disney Plus, it felt like a bit of a chore. I was like, I'd rather be watching something else. <laughs> How dare you? Know, you? Maybe, maybe I'll feel differently in a couple of years when my son can watch them with me. But right now, I was just like, oh, <laughs> it's not. You know, it's not on the level with the other Star Wars films. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> It's not like um, sophisticated drama, let's put it that way. Um, cool. Could you um, also read out the interview from Time Out, please, Kirsty? 
Ewoks, first seen in Return of the Jedi, have lifeless eyes, nuclear families, short fuses, clean burns, hang gliders, priestesses, wise men, and rhythm. They look like short, furry Colin Wellens and sound like David Rappaport clearing his throat in a subway. They live on Andor, which is like California, with rocky bits painted in front of the lens. The caravan is a vehicle for a kiddie quest for lost parents. Young, curly-top cutie and big, bolshy brother coming to terms with his inner obnoxiousness via confrontation with alien culture. Short on action by Lucasfilm standards, stuffed with toothy teddies which lack the charm of phase one gremlins or the wit of any Muppet. I blame Thatcher. <laughs> it's those okay. last three words that I just find so what? incomprehensible. I don't understand. There's <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Ewoks are creepy with like the, the eyes that do not blink. Yes. Oh my God. When they first find Sindel, I'm like, she must be terrified. <laughs> They're just like looking down at her with those unblinking <laughs> eyes. Oh my god! Especially if poor little Aubrey Miller couldn't distinguish between fantasy and reality. You know, she was so little, and she genuinely thought these were like aliens. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my god! Yeah, no, it must have been quite something. I did actually forget to say that, but honestly, apart from Wicket, the Ewok costumes in this film are bloody awful. I don't know what happened to them since Return of the Jedi, like whether they'd been dry cleaned or something. <laughs> it all gone horribly wrong, but I remember them looking way better in Jedi. I, I'm not imagining things, am I? They they did look better. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, I see what you mean. Yeah. They're like, yeah. And it is the eyes. A little rough around the edges. I think it's just those like dead staring eyes. And I think the lack of blinking is probably it. You know, that makes them much scarier. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it definitely made it harder to glom onto them, let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, I, I just love this review that, like you said, there's so many different things going on with it. I guess blaming Thatcher is maybe because Thatcher encouraged like rampant capitalism. And this is very much like a capitalist product. It's like Star Wars is popular. Let's make a Star Wars thing so we can get lots of viewers and bumps in seats and make advertising money. But I really don't know. <laughs> I would need to Just try to blame everything writer. you don't like on her. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. No, that's true. Definitely a convenient scapegoat. Um, although Margaret Thatcher genuinely was a pretty shit person who did. I was going to say. I would... Yeah. <laughs> I really feel too bad about that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. I just want to clarify I don't think she had any involvement with the Ewok movies, okay? So I don't want anyone to be confused. <laughs> so... Like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we'll find something out. Um, yeah, and I also I tried to find fan reviews from the time, but obviously finding fan reviews from 1984 is almost impossible because no one had the internet. So I did the next best thing, and I found one from 1998 on the alt fans Star Wars news group. Um, and yeah, could you read out this fan's opinion of Caravan of Courage, please, Kirsty? Over Easter, I taped Caravan of Courage and Ewok Adventure. I couldn't really watch at the moment it was running. I'd probably not used enough drugs and Buffy was on the other channel. (laughs) Yesterday night, I tried and fell asleep. I'll probably never watch it totally. Could happen, though. And last, how can somebody claim that Lucas is a good filmmaker after this? The other Ewok movie and Howard the Duck? I'll leave the Star Wars Holiday Special alone. He didn't have much to do with that. Even Willow isn't what I call a good movie. It's entertaining, etc., but not high level. I'm not trolling or anything. I'm just wondering if Star Wars was the last good thing he made. Is that the reason why he's picked it up again? Because he found out he couldn't do much more? Of course the Ewok movies are for children, but they'd be so much better with some stormtroopers killing some of these cute bastards instead of those not very convincing monsters. 
Oh. <laughs> the thing is, like, I I get why people in the Star Wars fandom don't like these movies. They're not like, they're not good. Sure. You know, but it's just a completely different target audience. Like, yes, Star Wars originally was for kids, but like older kids, you know, yeah. who like the space aspect and and the romance and this is totally different level yes so i get it like they're not really for us guys <laughs> exactly and i think like obviously i know this person's being tongue-in-cheek when they say about the stormtroopers killing the ewoks he's like well, come on you've got to be some sort of heartless monster to even suggest such a thing like well, that's kind of and i think they do that's in what return we have in return of the jedi yeah, yeah. You have not... the troopers there. Yeah, they do get that. And it just has no place in Ewok movies, okay? These are safe spaces. Ewoks can die, but it has to be in the pursuit of like a grand mythic quest where they help to random like milk sop American children. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Somehow better. Yeah. <laughs> then it's fine. It's fine. But that's what I mean about them just being completely detached from the external wider like actual political conflict going on it's like so quaint yeah exactly i i feel like i i know there has been like new canon material that goes into ewoks or at least mentions them but we have it's not like we've had like an ewok novel (laughs) wasn't there something in the chuck wendig trilogy weren't there like therapy ewoks what oh my god i need to go back to that i need to go back and look but yeah like that had a weird element to it too because these are people they're not like puppies yeah i I don't like that if that's a thing i really really strongly object i'd say that's more like colonialist and like dodgy than anything lucas did with the ewoks yeah i don't know i'm typing this in therapy ewoks um okay right i've found it okay canon this is definitely canon Okay, as a matter of recompense for saving Endor, some Ewoks agreed to travel off-world to help rebel veterans recuperate, working with Dr. Assad as therapy Ewoks. Therapy Ewoks were offered to those who had suffered the horrors of war, such as witnessing tragedy and needed help with their recovery. Those that found this option distasteful were sometimes given the use of a therapy droid instead. What the fuck? That's really fucked up. Yeah, because a droid is a droid. Like, a, These like are BB people. units, like BB-8. You know, you can imagine BB-8 being a therapy droid for Poe. Exactly, and that doesn't but, yeah. even make sense, the way it's framed. As a matter of recompense for saving Endor, some Ewoks agreed to travel off world to help rebel veterans. That makes it sound like some sort of, like, obligation, you know? Like, oh shit, we owe the rebel veterans something. It's also like they didn't just save Endor, they saved the entire galaxy. Yeah, exactly. And the Ewoks, like, saved their own bloody moon, you know? They were, like, very active in that battle. Like, screw that, God. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't read those books now. I do not like that. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I was a bit over... Maybe a bit too far ahead of myself when I said that Star Wars has been better at depicting this kind of thing with the Tuscan Raiders because those aftermath novels they're not very old. Yeah, they're new canon, so yeah, no more thought should have yeah. been given. I think in that case. Um, I mean, we see we see an Ewok in um, Last Shot, right? Who's like traveling with human characters and is considered an equal. Yes, right. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, so, like, I think Ewoks are being given a little bit more characterization, which is good, because 
yeah, they deserve it. There's a lot of rich, like, cultural heritage there that deserves to be explored. So, yeah. Justice for Ewoks, in my opinion. Well, I just like to know more about uh, Wicket and his life. Yeah. You know? I mean... No, definitely. Yeah, you could ha- you could have had a movie actually from his perspective. Yeah, no, that'd be interesting. They've like presented him again. Like obviously, he was there in Rise of Skywalker with his own kid. So yeah, yeah there could be a whole world waiting for like Ewok material if Disney would just take the plunge and go there. So I hope that happens one day. <laughs> um, okay, but do you have any closing words on Caravan of Courage? We'll be back next time with Battlefriend or material. So I hope you're all excited. I think we'll be able to compare it with it a bit more easily next time because yes. there there are interesting differences between these movies and in tone as well, like which was quite surprising first time round. Yeah, I've only um, seen the first ten minutes of Battlefront Door, but I was immediately struck by how much darker it was. And, different vibe. Yeah, and there's much more like dramatic happenstance, I suppose, in the first ten minutes of that movie than in the whole of Caravan of Courage. Mm. yeah i i appreciate that it doesn't seem like it will be boring so that is good but yeah i'll find out um okay cool so i'm rachel and you can find me on twitter at rachel 1918 i'm kirsty and you can find both of us on twitter at scavengers horde until next time bye bye